right. Hey, hey. There are some seats over here if you don't want to sit over there. Right? Um, we good, Josh? All right, so every once in a while, this is a good problem to run out of the seats, and I think next week's going to be worse. So um, this is a good problem to run out of seats. I don't know what I was saying. Anyway, every few uh, whatevers, I like to pause and let people ask a question about the Bible. We do it at youth group once in a while. They come in person, ask any question about the Bible. But I took a few questions from some people, and uh, they might sound odd at first. You might be like, what the... But um, I think they'll be interesting, and I think they open up avenues to think about how to study the Bible. I'm not going to ask you questions, so don't get nervous, though that would be fun. We might do a question and answer where I just decide to ask you questions, like, tell me what the outline of Isaiah is, and just, I'm going to turn the camera around, and you can wet your pants. But anyway, um, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 2. I did not fake this question. Somebody asked this question. And not for any wrong reason. But the first question. And if anybody else has a question after tonight, shoot it by way. If we get some, I'll, I'll do another week of it. If, if it's quiet, I will, uh, I'll go on to Matthew, God willing. All right? 1 Timothy 3.2. He's giving here the qualifications for a bishop or a pastor. And he says, A bishop then must be blameless. The husband... Of one wife. And the question was, what does the Bible say about polygamy? Right? Having more than one wife, more than one. I think it's a different word when there's more than one husband, but let's just say one word. Polygamy, right? Having more than one spouse. What does the Bible weigh in on that? Obviously, there was a reason why Timothy was told that a bishop or a pastor must be the husband of more than one wife, right? Because probably there might have been some things going on at the time where people had more than one wife. Now, the way the Pharisee takes that verse, I just want to step off, the way the Pharisee takes that verse, it says, you can never be married more than once. That's not what the verse says. It says, you must be the husband of one wife. That means you can't be married to more than one woman at the same time, right? Because if you're married to someone and you die, they die, that person dies, the wife dies, newsflash, you're no longer married to her anymore, right? Because marriage is simply a joining together of flesh and flesh, and when that is separated through death, that is a divorce. And sometimes there are times when someone is put away because of infidelity or adultery, and that is also a divorce when flesh no longer joins with flesh. That is also, you also no longer married to that person. So the Pharisee reads this and says, oh, you were divorced, you know? A lot of times they'll say, uh, Oh, you were divorced, you can never be in the ministry again. That's the Pharisee. That's the Pharisaical spirit. They get hung up on sexual sins and sexual things. They're, they're just twisted about that stuff. So it's not saying that. The Bible is saying must be the husband of one wife, all right? Meaning don't be married to more than one person at the same time. So there's a couple of seats over here, guys, if you need seats over here. There's a very good problem. We need to get more seats in here. Um, so anyway... Um, here are some ground rules for answering the question, all right? Here's some ground rules for answering the question. First ground rule for answering the question. When you read your Bible, you have to, number one, that is great, okay? Number one, you have to acknowledge the difference between God's descriptions versus God's 
directions. There are moments in the Bible where God is simply describing the way people did things and He's not directing you to do those same things. You have to acknowledge those moments. You have to acknowledge the difference between when God is allowing something to happen versus God approving something to happen. There is a difference. The Bible, God allows a lot of things to happen. It doesn't mean God approved those things to happen. And with that as well, God's permission, these are all just synonyms, versus God's prescription. That's the first ground rule, okay? God describes, I'll give you an example. God describes the occupation of his disciples as fishermen, right? Most of them were fishermen. But God never prescribes that all his disciples need to be fishermen. God describes his people wearing long robes. God never prescribes that you have to dress a certain way with a long robe to please him. God talks about people meeting in homes. God never says you have to meet in your home. He never prescribes that. If you read the book of Acts, for example, you see descriptions of all kinds of things. You see different modes of salvation in the book of Acts. You see people getting saved with the Holy Spirit falling on them. You see people getting saved with hands being laid on them. But it's not until Paul's letters that you see God's prescription and directions for how the New Testament church should be conducted. So you have to be very careful when you read your Bible, especially the historical books like Acts, that have certain things happening in them that God is describing, allowing, and permitting, but not directing, approving, or prescribing. That is the first ground rule. If you can get that ground rule down for your Bible study, it'll save you a lot of pain. Is what I'm reading historical description, like Acts or Second Chronicles, or am I reading something like Thou Shalt Not? That's more of a directive. Got to get that down. Number two, second ground rule. The Bible, I know this is not even worth me writing it for most of you because you can't see it. i got to get a black marker. The Bible has to become our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Meaning, the Bible has to be the authority. We've got to let the book define terms. We have to let the book define terms. What happens? Not work. Oh, you got a black marker? Thank you so much. Excellent day. All right? Two black markers. All right? So... I'll give an example. Go to Genesis chapter 6. Just a quick example. We've got to let the Bible define terms. Now, if I was talking to a group of young people, and like, I'm trying to come up with an essay, I'm trying to write a descriptive essay, we'd say, hey, use your imagination. And the world smiles on imagination. We applaud imagination. We say, oh, he's got such a vivid imagination. Oh, you've got such a, such a wild imagination. Use your imagination. You know, lean on your imagination. Now, when we say that, we're talking creativity. I'm not saying we're suggesting something evil. But the Bible has a very different take on imagination. Genesis 6, 5 is the first word, uh, first use of imagination. And look how God uses it. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is a negative verse. 
That is a negative connotation. God is saying, hey, you let your mind roam, it's only going to be evil. You let your mind wander, it's only going to lead you astray. You just sit there and daydream and fantasize and just let your mind just, you know, just do what it wants to do. Guess what? The Bible commands you, Philippians 4, 8, to think on certain things. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, to cast down imaginations. When your mind starts to conjure up those pictures in your head, those images that you conjure, imagination, the process of imaging, when those pictures or those ideas pop up in your mind, the Bible says that they don't line up with the Word of God, they're evil. And to subdue them and acknowledge them as such, to cultivate your thought life, we don't think about this. The Bible says in Psalms that the wicked does not have God in all his thoughts. God wants to be in all your thoughts. Doesn't mean you're thinking about him all the time, but all of your thoughts are under the umbrella of his word and his precepts. And when something slips out, oh, oh, that's wicked, that's the wrong thought, that's not from you, God, I acknowledge it as such. Lord, you, you cast that down for me, Lord. You see, the Bible has to be our authority. I'll give you another one, all right? Go to uh, Proverbs chapter 20. Well, I'm going to step on the toe. I don't know. Maybe my, my, I'll step on my own toe here. <clears throat> we get into, people want to talk about drinking, right? And they got their little pet verses on it. They got their little half a verse in Timothy. They got their little half a verse in 2 Timothy. Uh, Drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake. And they got that one in 1 Timothy, you know, not given to much wine. And they'll take that and they'll say, well, you see, it's not a big deal. Well, Proverbs 20 is... Verse 1 says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. The Bible is resoundingly negative on drinking alcohol. And I'm not going to make that my only message. I know there's many other sins in the book. But I mean, I could give you 50 verses for your half a verse that says resoundingly, stay away from that subject. Don't give it to your neighbor. (laughs) Woe to him that giveth his neighbor a drink. I mean, this is not like subtle verses. You never take an incomplete, shadowy verse and use it to interpret a clear, resounding verse. When the Bible says, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, that's a lot clearer and more negative than, you know, not given to much wine versus, you know, like we... We're strange creatures sometimes. We're looking for any little loophole to get in there and do what we want to do. But if the Bible is really our final authority, then he gets to determine what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what's light, what's dark. So that's going to be the same. And thirdly, thirdly, all right, here's the third ground rule. Oh, nice marker, right? You should desire God's best. If God prescribes something for his kings or for his pastors, that doesn't mean you should look for how how far away you could stand from the line and see if God still favors you. There are things that God says to a pastor that God does not say to you, that God does not hold you accountable for. That doesn't mean you just say, oh, I don't have to do that. I'm free from that. I can live how I want. No, you should still strive for God's best. You should still want to come up to where God says the ideal is. If God says that his kings should or should not do a certain thing, that doesn't mean, well, I'm not a king. I could do whatever I want. No, see, we have a backwards way of thinking about it. We want to walk right up until the line and still say, how close can I get to sin, God, and still be in your good favor? 
And God says, no, I've told you what my best is. Here are my top guys, my kings, my priests. These are my guys. Here's what I want from those guys. If those are God's highest guys, then I should want to be like God's highest guys. I shouldn't be content to be a schlep over here and just want to do whatever I want to do and just say, well, that's for pastors and kings. You'll see why, you'll see why all these ground rules are important. That pay attention to description versus direction. Make the Bible your final authority and desire God's best. That having been said, let's go to Genesis chapter 4. Let's start with, because the Bible talks about polygamy. The Bible has people in his book, some good people in his book, that take more than one wife. Take many of them. I don't know how they keep track of the birthdays and the anniversaries, but God bless them. Solomon must have been wise. Right? Genesis chapter 4. Let's deal with first the implicit. I'm not even going to show you commands first. I'm going to do some Bible study. Implicit, meaning not stated, subtle, indirect. Implicitly, how does God present polygamy? How does God define it? How does God seem to charge it as negative or positive? I'll show you a few examples, and it'll be very easy to see implicitly what God thinks about it. Ready? Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. Here is your first polygamist in the Bible. First one. And you say, why are we thinking about this? Hey, folks, I don't have, unless you're living under a rock, you're all thinking, oh, Mormons. Yeah, Mormons, fundamentalist Mormons, still practice polygamy. Mainstream Mormonism, i.e. Mitt Romney, they say, oh, no, we don't do that stuff anymore. But Brigham Young and uh, Joseph Smith, sorry, Joe, I almost forgot your name, even though you think you're higher than Jesus, Joe. But Joseph Smith and, and Brigham Young, those original people thought that polygamy was like next to everything because you got to make a lot of spirit babies to populate, you know, those planets out there. So they held polygamy very dear, near and dear to their heart. And as it became taboo, they quietly put it off their books. Like the original Mormons thought that Lucifer and Jesus were brothers. And when that became taboo, they said, let's make that disappear. The original Mormons said that the curse of black skin was something God inflicted on the blacks because when they were in that previous life, they didn't, you know, they stayed neutral in the battle between uh, Jesus and Lucifer. That quietly became a little bit of a taboo and got pushed around on the side. I'm, and, and now today, small Mormon sects still practice polygamy, still practice bloodletting, still practice glory killings that happens in America. Places out there in Missouri, these small Mormon sects, not mainstream Mormonism, but that's not what I'm preaching against. Because this spirit of polygamy is very alive and well, folks. We have these polyamorous couples now that want to just have these open marriages and open relationships and just open stuff. And it's, it's, it's out of hell, but it's real. So I wanted to show you what God thinks about that whole thing from, from, from start to finish in your Bible. Genesis 4 verse 16 is your first polygamist. His name is Lamech. It says, And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, the people all went like this. Anyway, and uh, thank you, I'll be here all week. On the east of Eden, and Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch, and he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Irid, and Irid begat Mahulel, and Mahulel begat Methuselel, and Methusael begat Lamech. And Lamech took unto him two wives. That would be bigamy, right? Two wives, a type of polygamy. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was other Zilha. Now jump to verse 23. And Lamech said unto his wives, plural, Ada and Zilha, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding, 
and a young man to my hurt. So we like to study the rule of first mention. The first polygamist in your Bible is a descendant of Cain who was of that wicked one who was in Satan's line and he was a murderer. You know what that tells me? That's a bad association. That's a bad start. God is defining things for you. God is providing light for you. Go to Genesis chapter 16. Let's look at Abraham. Abraham's told he's going to have a son. That son's going to inherit all his stuff. Sarai doesn't believe God. She says, I got this, I got this Egyptian over here named Hagar. You hook up with her, you know, we'll make it happen. And in Genesis 16, 4, it says, And he, meaning Abram, went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress, meaning Sarai, was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. Abram takes another woman and brings problems for his people. That offspring of Hagar and Abraham is still here to this day. Produce those Arab peoples that still hate the children of Abraham, i.e. the children of Israel, and are a thorn in their side. Verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, meaning Hagar, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction, and he will be a wild man. You watch the news, you'll see how wild they are. He will be a wild man, his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. There is a prophecy that Hagar's offspring will be a problem for Israel. They're a problem today. They're fighting with everybody. They're an angry, cantankerous people that are given to war, and they're right there dwelling alongside the children of Abraham. God said it thousands of years ago. Nothing good came of that union. How about Judges chapter 8? Let's keep going. Judges chapter 8. Joshua Judges. Judges 8. Look at verse 29. It's about Gideon. And, And Jeroboam... The son of Joash went and dwelt in his own house, and Gideon had threescore and ten sons of his body begotten, for he had many wives. And his concubine that was in Shechem, she also bare him a son whose name he called Abimelech. Gideon has many women. One of those women produced an antichrist named Abimelech. Why did God stick that in there? He's showing you all this like mixing around. It didn't bring forth anything good. It brought forth somebody like Abimelech. Bimelech was a vicious ruler. He's a type of antichrist. He's killed by a woman dropping a millstone on his head, right? Bruised in the head, like the antichrist will be bruised. The head will be bruised by a woman. Uh, look at 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm just showing you a few verses here, and I'll get to some. I don't even have to give you the directions yet. Some of you are like, why don't you just tell me the directions? I want to show you that if we just slow down and let the Bible give you the connotation and the Bible give you its judgment on signs, symbols, phenomena, relationships, the Bible will give you what you're supposed to know about it. You just let the Bible be the scale and it'll tell you, is this a good thing or a bad thing? It'll be found in the balances and found wanting. Right? Look at 1 Samuel 1. 
This is Elkanah, Hannah's husband. 1 Samuel 1.4 And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Elkanah has two wives. You know what came of that union? Bitterness, strife, provocation. They were adversaries to each other. It wasn't a sweet union. It wasn't, you know, a, a big family and all that stuff. It was problematic. Just think about it on a practical level. You ever watch any of these interviews with any of these uh, sister wives and these Mormon families? It, was, it wasn't all sweet and pretty. It was messy. You could just imagine that the jealousy, the envy, the strife that it reaped. That's what's being presented here. How about 1 Kings chapter 11? It was a little overkill, but I figured I'd just kill it. 1 Kings 11. Eleven one. But King Solomon loved many strange women. Doesn't mean they had a tail or weird teeth. They were foreign women. They weren't children of Israel. They weren't Jews like Solomon was. They had different gods, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, enemies, Ammonites, enemies, Edomites, enemies, Zidonians, enemies, Hittites, enemies, five groups of people, the number of death. Of the nations concerning which the Lord had said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, God bless them, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Right? Solomon's wives turn away his heart. And can I say this to all the young people who aren't married yet? You mess around with the unsaved, that's what they're going to do. I know you think I'm going to get them saved and then I'm going to, I'm going to get married to them and then they're going to come to church. If you can't get, to get them to come to church before, they're saved, before you're married, you ain't getting them to come to church after they're married. Because you see, before you're married, they're performing and they're trying to do things to impress you. If you can't get them to come to church before you're married, what incentive do they have to come to church after they've got you and got their ring around that finger? Right? So be wise. I know, God help, one of you is going to hear this go in one ear and out the other because she's so pretty or he's so charming. And you're just going to be like, but this and but that. And I know you think you're going to be the exception, but you're only going to be the exception that proves the rule. God said, surely they'll turn away your heart. And in verse 3, they turned away his heart. You're not going to beat the Bible. You're not going to beat the Bible. You're not going to ever sidestep the Bible. You're never going to beat it. You'd be better off waiting for God's best than cutting the corners. And sure. Now, does God have mercy? Amen. Praise the Lord, He does. There's many an instance, probably somebody in here that could say, well, you know, God works it out because He's merciful sometimes. That doesn't mean you presume upon His mercy. 
Maybe somebody did something they didn't know better because they weren't thinking, but then God works it out for them because he sees their heart and they try to make things right. Praise the Lord for that. But if you're sitting here right now, a young person, listening to the sound of my voice, I'm telling you, don't even entertain the date with the unsaved girl or the unsaved guy. And if you hear that warning from me and you do it anyway, you're not unaccountable. You are responsible for what you heard. So don't be stupid. It wouldn't be smart. All right, go one more. Second Chronicles 11. Second Chronicles 11, verse 1. Oh, I thought I didn't have enough material. What was I thinking? Uh, 1121. Here's Rehoboam, Solomon's dad. Solomon's son, I'm sorry. And Rehoboam loved Maka, the daughter of Absalom. Hello. <laughs> Above all his wives and his concubines. For he took 18 wives and threescore concubines, and begot 28 sons and threescore daughters. And Rehoboam made Abijah, the son of Maka, the chief, to be ruler among his brethren, for he thought to make him king. The end of verse 23, he desired many wives. Sounds just like a chip off the old block. And the next chapter, the first verse. And it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. So I haven't found anything good come of this. It's all negative. It's hearts getting turned away. It's people having strife. It's murderers. It's devils. God's saying, I'm just showing you implicitly, don't mess with it. But how about some explicit things? How about what does God actually prescribe about polygamy in the Bible? Let's go to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 27. All right? So God created man in his own image, I mean, the image of God, he created, created him. This one, we got to just, let CNN look at this one. Male and female created he them. Is that, that, that tricky? Do we need to break that down, right? God created male and female. You say, why are you making such a big deal about that? Well, if your father made something and someone else misrepresented it, wouldn't you be offended? My father made them male and female, not 77 genders, not fluidity, not, you know, sexually fluid and, you know, non-binary. These things are, are fairy tales. We have validated fairy tales so much so that you're, you're uncomfortable right now that I'm even saying it. You're worried about what are they going to say on YouTube? Are they going to come in here and lock us up? They're going to shut us down. But we have actually said, if I said, I think Pat Lisa over here, I think he's a bowling ball. And I try to roll him up into a bowling ball and throw him down the lane down in Strathmore. He said, what are you doing? I'm not a bowling ball. I, th- I, I identify you as a bowling ball. He said, that's not how I was made. So what? That's what I think. What's the difference? I identify as a cat. I identify as a tree. I identify as a man. I identify as a woman. I, what does it matter? You're not doing what you were made to be or do. It's disturbing. It's twisted. So God creates male and female. I'll probably get thrown out of the school for that. Uh, verse, chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they, too, shall be one flesh. So God creates male and female, and in chapter 2, God joins the first male and the first female together. Singular male, singular female. One woman, one man, in the first marriage. God's saying, you want to know marriage is? It's one woman and one man. It's becoming one. That's what God defines as marriage. Now go to Deuteronomy chapter 17. 
You say, but David had other wives, and he was a man after God's own heart. I know, but you, are, you tell me you love God, you've never done anything wrong? David did something wrong. Abraham did something wrong, right? Deuteronomy 17, 17. Let me show you what God said about his kings. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Speaking about, he's, he's prescribing in the law how God's king should be. And it says, Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Now, if you read a little later in that chapter, the king was supposed to write out a copy of the word of the law. I don't know, maybe Solomon missed those verses because God warned them way back unto Moses, don't have more than one wife. A king shouldn't have more than one wife. And guess who you are? You're a king and a priest unto God Almighty through Jesus Christ. You're not supposed to have more than one wife. Now, I know, David did. Solomon did. Many of the kings did. Hey, just because God didn't stop a king doesn't mean he wanted that king to do that, right? Did he want David to take Bathsheba and kill Uriah? No. Did he shoot him with a lightning bolt? No. Sometimes we do things that God doesn't want. It's called sin, right? Just because God doesn't stop you from doing something doesn't mean he wants you to do that sin, does it? God doesn't break your legs every time. God doesn't shoot you with a lightning bolt every time. If you're thinking that I'm just going to, if God stopped me if I'm doing something wrong, that's the wrong way to roll. Because Jonah found a ship at the end of the dock. He must have thought God's in this, but he was completely opposite from where Jonah was. Right? So, just because God is merciful and long-suffering and has a big heart, don't think that means God approved of these kings doing this stuff. He told you explicitly, don't do it, kings. They did it anyway. And we do the same cotton-picking thing. Don't do it, son, and we do it anyway. Don't get angry, we get angry. Don't fret, we fret. Don't, don't be envious, we get envious. Don't, don't do this, we do it anyway. So before you're so quick to judge those other people and think less of God, be thankful that he's merciful. Amen. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Let's go to the New Testament a little bit, just a few more verses on this. Then I want to get to one more question if I, if I can. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 2. If you want to find the instructions for marriage in the New Testament church, do not go to Matthew. Go to 1 Corinthians, because that's Paul. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, the Lord says, To avoid fornication, let every man, singular, have his own wife, singular, and let every woman, singular, have her own husband, singular. Is there any doubt? It's all singular. Every is an indefinite pronoun, that is singular, okay? It means one. So every man, one, have his own wife, one. How about Ephesians chapter 5? Verse 31. Let's just nail it home. Ephesians 5.31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, a man, that's one, by the way, and shall be joined unto his wife, that's one, that's singular, and they, two, shall be one flesh. So there's the picture of Christ in his church. What's happening now, because we're sanctioning insanity, now we call individuals they. Your brains are turned to marshmallow fluff, people. You can't think anymore. You can't communicate anymore. 
are you talking about? I remember, I, I told the story, right? The time when a girl was talking about they, and I was like, no, but that's, that doesn't agree. That's not pronoun antecedent agreement. And she reproved me. That's very, that's very, that's very nasty of you to question someone's gender and try. I was just like, I'm an English teacher. I'm just trying to, but it's all shot. Once the language is shot, you're shot. Once the words are shot, you're done. Stick a fork in you because you're done. I got to call you Z and you they and you pumpkin spice and whatever I'm going to call you. Right? If I'm just going to start calling things whatever I want, you don't have any authority by which to communicate. You're done. You are done. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Right? But here's the picture of Christ in his church. Christ left his father like a husband leaves his father to go be married, to take a bride. That's the picture that we're supposed to maintain. Hey, does... Christ is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. Does Jesus Christ have multiple brides? <laughs> Does the church have more than one husband? Not supposed to. Sometimes we play the harlot, but we're not supposed to. Go to Matthew chapter 19. We'll finish this on this part here. 19, 4 and 5. They're asking about divorce. Because again, those Pharisees are hung up on divorce. They're hung up on it, man. They swallow that camel. And it says in 19.4, And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. Jesus reproves them and mentions one man and one woman in marriage. But then he says in verse number 8, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. He says, why does divorce still happen then if God didn't really want it? Because of the hardness of people's hearts. That's the reason for divorce. That's the reason for polygamy. There's a heart problem. There's something wrong with the heart that you're not satisfied with something or someone. And that's what God, he doesn't want divorce and he doesn't want polygamy either. There's something wrong with the heart. So let's go to the next one. Let's go to Genesis chapter 8. Second question. Any questions about that? See Matt Mayetta. All right? Because I don't want to field them. I don't really want to. Uh, I hopefully I did a thorough enough job. That we, the, person who, the person who asked this was like, I'm asking for a friend. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, it was, it, was, it was out of the right place. Because uh, it's happening, man. You're seeing this open relationship stuff, this polyamorous stuff. It's like, you know, it's, it's weird, man. Second question. I think I could do it. Not as long. Oh, yeah. Genesis 8, 6 and 7. This is when Noah let the birds out of the ark. Genesis 8, 6 and 7. It says, And it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. Okay, the question that came in was, what is the significance of the raven? Like, what's this all about? So it was a good question. I enjoyed studying it out, figuring out what my notes in my Bible meant. I had to revisit some stuff. All right, another big rule for Bible study. God works by patterns. God works by types and similitudes. If you learn the patterns, you'll learn the Bible. Because there's some things where you don't have an explicit verse, but you see the pattern that God has, and you connect the dots that way. You learn the patterns, you learn the Bible. Now, in this scene here, we, ha- we can't just talk about the raven. We've got to talk about 
there are four times the birds are let out. One, and it's a fourfold mention, one of them is the raven let out once. Three of them are the, is the dove. All right? So there's a pattern here. And if we just follow the pattern, we see God is revealing something about his program and what he would do throughout his Bible and his timeline. Let's start with the raven, the one that quotes nevermore, all right? English teacher joke, sorry, I can't help that one, all right? All the Edgar Allan Poe fans said, we're upset, all right? So Genesis 8-7, the raven, and he sent forth a raven, which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. Well, the raven goes out and never comes back. Let's say some things about the raven. Number one about the raven. The raven is a black bird. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, talks about uh, the bridegroom's hair being black as a raven. Right? Blackness in the Bible, not a good thing. Usually associated with darkness. Flip over to Leviticus, chapter 11. Actually, don't even flip there. I'll just tell you. It's easy. It's not an exciting verse. So I'll just tell you. In Leviticus 11... The raven is an unclean fowl of the air. An unclean bird. And if you do want to hold your place there and flip to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verse 4. Is the parable of the sower, and it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And then Jesus Christ defines who those fowls of the air are. Verse number 15, and these are they which by the wayside where the word is sown, but when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately. Doesn't the devil walk about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour? Verse 4 says they devour. Verse 15 says it's Satan. So those fowls of the air, that raven is connected to the devil himself. Go back to Genesis 8. You know, I know it's connected to the devil himself because I see how that raven moves. He moves to and fro. And the book of Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 God says to the devil, hey boy, what you been doing? He says, I've been just going up and down in the earth and to and fro in it. That's the way the devil moves. You say, what does this represent? Oh, also, also, the raven never comes back. He never returns. He feeds on all those things he finds. He makes his home in that dead planet. He wasn't afraid of those carcasses. He didn't mind you know, rolling up with them. Why? Proverbs 8.36 says, all they that hate me love death. So that raven represents the devil. You know what time period this represents? I should have drawn this better. You know what this represents for you? This represents the fall of Lucifer. Genesis 1.1, Genesis 1.2. That's where it all starts. That's the first bird let out, right? In Genesis 1.1, if you want to just flip back a little bit, It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. There's your darkness. There's that black raven. Darkness. That devil departs from the presence of God. He never returns to his former position. The raven never comes back into the ark. Never returns to Noah, a type of God the Father. 
You say, well, was that just darkness? You read over in John chapter 1, verse number 5, and that Bible says that darkness had comprehension ability. He says, and the darkness in John 1, 5 comprehended it not. That was not just physical darkness in the beginning. That was spiritual darkness. That was Satan and whatever rebellion he wrought was happening right there in the early moments of the Bible. And your entire Bible is a struggle between light and darkness. That's the whole book. You're a child of light. You're not a child of the night. It's all about light and darkness. From cover to cover, it is light and darkness. It starts right there. That first bird being let out is Lucifer rebelling against God, the darkness unleashed, never to return again, and just wander to and fro in the earth. Go back to Genesis 8, but it doesn't stop there. We can map out God's entire program in these birds. Genesis 8, verse 8. And he sent forth a dove from him. Also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. And the, but the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. And she returned unto him into the ark for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. So now we've got a dove. And the dove goes out. And the dove finds no rest. Okay? Let's say some things about the dove. First, we see the dove. We know the dove is connected to the Holy Spirit. Because in Matthew chapter 3, 16, the Holy Spirit shows up in the form of a dove and lighting upon Jesus Christ. You, you, that's interesting, isn't it? The Father and the Spirit show up at the Son's baptism. The Godhead is a real thing. They're not all the same. They're not all Jesus. Okay? That is heresy to think that way. They're not all Jesus. Right? They are separate and unified at the same time. When you figure it out, let me know. Because I have no idea how that works. Right? Right? Um, but anyway, dove finds no rest. Please also notice that the dove finds no rest. The Holy Spirit... is not connected to water. You notice the Holy Spirit found no rest on a, on, a, on a planet covered in water still, sloshing around with water. You say, why is that important? Well, you never bumped into anybody that thought baptism was the way you got the Holy Spirit? You never talked to somebody that said baptism would impart the Holy Spirit to you? I have. Church of Christ, people believe that all the time. The baptism, they believe in baptism. The Catholic Church believes in baptismal regeneration. They think the Holy Spirit imparts upon you the gift of the Holy Spirit. I find here that my type of the Holy Spirit isn't comfortable enough to be around all that water. That tells me the Holy Spirit's not connected to, to water like that. And I find no rest. You know why there's no rest? Because there's no indwelling of the Holy Spirit happening here. You say, what time period is this? What could this be? This could be Adam to the law. This is the fall of Lucifer. Let me see if I can write it this way. Let's say this is Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, 1, 2. And right here, you can make this Genesis 1, 3 to Exodus 19. This is Adam to the law, right? I know Adam comes a little later, I know. But just, this is after that, to the law. Let's go to the next one. Genesis 8, verse 10. Keep reading with me. Stay with me now. I'm almost done. And he stayed yet other seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. 
And the dove came into him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah, uh, so Noah, I lost myself here. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. All right, what do we have here? Now we have the dove brings back an olive leaf. What do we know about those things? Well, first, notice that Noah waits seven days. So something is complete and something new is starting. Notice, please, the dove returns in the evening. You know, that would be the start of the Jewish day. An evening and the morning were the first day. The Jewish day began in the evening. Please notice in verse 11, she comes back with an olive leaf. The olive tree is an emblem of the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 11 tells us that, that the nation of Israel is likened to an olive tree. So what does this represent? This represents the law to the first coming of Christ. When he came, Jesus Christ, to redeem Israel. There are so many items here about Israel. The olive leaf, the evening, all these things here are related back to Israel. Here is Jesus Christ coming to be that redeemer for his people Israel. He's coming to restore Israel. Romans chapter 15, verse 8. But wait, there's more. Third time, or fourth time. Genesis 8, 12. And he stayed yet other seven days. Okay. He stayed yet other seven days and sent forth a dove which returned not again unto him anymore. So now, the dove finds rest. The dove does not return. Noah waits another seven days. So we got another new beginning. Something new is starting as well. Seven days, something's complete. The dove does not return. The dove finds rest. What is this picture? Very easy. If we're just following along here, fall of Lucifer, Adam to the law, the law to Christ, and then the church age. Because in the church age, the Holy Spirit abides in the body of the believer. He, he, he abides in you. Right? Look at, um, go to Revelation chapter 1. That's not what I want. Never mind. Never mind. Forget that verse. I'm sorry. Don't know why I even flipped you over there. But the point I wanted to make is that... Oh, when you flip through, like, let's flip through... uh, Let's flip through, like, go to Galatians. Go to Galatians chapter 1. Sorry. When you look at the greetings... When you look at the greetings of the of Paul to the churches, you'll see there's a greeting from the Father and from the Son 
but you don't get a greeting from the Holy Spirit. Because where's the Holy Spirit? He's in the church. He's in the bodies of those believers. He's on the earth working, right? Galatians 1 is just one example, right? Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. If we flip over, uh, let's look at Ephesians 1, right? Look at Ephesians 1 verse 2. Um, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Go to Philippians chapter 1 verse 2. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let's see. Colossians 1 2. Middle of verse. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, 1 Thessalonians verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 1 1. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's pretty consistent. He doesn't send greeting from the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is abiding in the bodies of the believers. The Holy Spirit is the administer of the church. We could call this dispensation the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. The church begins with the Holy Spirit, right? It starts with Him, right? Borning that church. What does Jesus say when he conceives those guys in the upper room? He breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Right? The church is then born on the day of Pentecost. It's the Holy Spirit that kind of gave birth to this thing. It's the Holy Spirit that, we, that helps us walk. It's the Holy Spirit that brings our prayers up before the throne. It's the Holy Spirit that baptizes us in the body of Christ. Like everything about the church is administered and done through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Right? The Spirit of a dead man. The Holy Ghost. And that's the spirit that, go to 1 Corinthians 6, that lives inside of us and among us. First Corinthians 6, verse number 19. <clears throat> what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And if you flip over to chapter 3, now that's individually, right? Individually, right? You have the Holy Spirit in you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. I hope, right? Right? But you know what? He's also among us corporately. Amen. Chapter 3, verse number 16. <clears throat> know ye not that ye, that's all of you, right? That's corporate. Are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now, some people say, well, that means if you hurt your body, do something wrong with your body, God's mad at you. There's some truth in that, of course, but that's not what that verse is talking about. That verse is saying, you see all you guys gathered here together in Aberdeen, New Jersey? You're the temple of God right now. Yes, your body is the temple of God, and corporately, this is where the Holy Spirit lives and works and moves about. And if you hurt this thing, God says, I'm going to take you out. Amen, amen. As we say, you hurt the temple of God. You defile it. You soil it. You bring your dirty shoes into this place. God says, I'll knock you back out the door. 
God treats this thing very sacred and very special. Yes, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, and our fellowship is also a temple of sorts. It's where the Holy Spirit abides and works and moves. He ain't working in Washington. Lord knows it. He ain't working at the EU. The Lord knows that. He ain't working at the UN. He never did. He ain't working over there. You know where he works? In little congregations like this. Amen. That's where he's working and moving. That's where he's paying attention to. And he says, you defile this thing. You think light of this thing. You trod this thing underfoot. You soil and dirty this thing. God says, I'll destroy you. Right? Amen. If somebody comes after my wife, the best of my ability... I don't fight too good, but I scratch like the best of them. Um, I still know how to rake eyes out. I'll destroy you as best I can, right? Even if I have to use lead to do it, right? I'll destroy you. And God says, Christ says, that's my bride. You mess with my bride, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to break your knees so you can't walk again. God takes it very seriously. So you learn the patterns. You say, what verse did you look up to know that? I didn't. You just start, you start to learn the patterns. You learn the patterns. You learn the Bible, right? You're not always going to have a, you know, there's going to be verses, but then there's going to be principles and types. And the Bible says, I've spoken to my prophets by similitudes, by pictures and types. And when you start to see the types, then you can connect the dots. Then you can have a verse over here and something over here and say, what about that? Because God did it like that over here. And that's how you really start to learn the Bible really well. That becomes the way you connect it. Now, I'm going to tell you something. That takes time and work, which we don't want to often put in. They're four-letter curse words to most Christians. Time and work. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So what's the significance of the raven? Well, Lucifer... Rebelling against God, never to return. God dealing stuff after Adam, up unto the law. Then God turning his attention to a nation, culminating in Christ coming to the Messiah of that nation. Ultimately, they reject him, and then that Holy Spirit finds rest and abode inside the body of believers during this age called the church or the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. God laid it out. You aren't past the eighth chapter of Genesis, and he's laid it out in pictures and types. It's the glory of God to conceal a thing. But the honor of kings is to search out a matter. So keep searching, folks. Keep thinking. Keep, uh, keep letting the Bible define its terms, and you'll start to put it together. Uh, you can go off the wall on it. You know, you can get a little crazy with types and get a little wacky and be like, I see this thing over here. I think it means McDonald's. No, no, we'll bring you back if it gets like that. But by the preponderance of the evidence... And the bulk of the evidence and the multitude of counsels, you can start to see where things line up. And uh, that's a blessing. So I hope that was a little bit of a help to you and uh, just about good time, right, for us to stop. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we love you today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this book, for these folks. I pray anything I said, Lord, that was wrong, you would take it away. And we just pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, you bless the kids as they finish up and help us, Lord, to grow in grace and knowledge and just be a church that loves you and loves each other until you come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.